0: God, we, uh, we welcome you into this place, we know you're a present, uh, you reside within us, uh, but I think when your community comes together in a unique way, then you reveal yourself even more. There's something about rubbing shoulders and giving hugs and uh, shaking hands with people around us and wanting to be known, and uh, in the midst of that, God, your love is very present. So I pray this morning we might see you, that we might be mesmerized by you, uh, that as we look into your word, that you might reveal yourself more fully, um, and that all attention and all glory and all honor would go to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that uh, many of us are coming off of spring break. That could be a spring break from college as there's been several colleges with different spring breaks, or many of you are coming back from uh, Spokane Public School spring break, and uh, that just ended, or maybe you still feel like you're on it, and school starts tomorrow, Uh, but hopefully you took a little bit of time over these breaks to experience Sabbath, to rest, to reflect, to kind of recharge. Um, A new community, we call that being recreational. It's one of our values. I'll put it up on the screen. Recreational means to intentionally set aside space to rest, to enjoy life, to cease to accomplish or produce. There's a rhythm of life that submits my schedule to the values of the kingdom, practices simplicity, and acknowledges the need for Sabbath keeping. Hopefully, uh, all of us took some time to lean into this particular value over the break. Uh, If not, I would encourage you that uh, Sabbath comes around once a week, and uh, you can always live into this value. It's something that I think is uh, vitally important for followers of Jesus to embrace and to figure out how to find the divine in some of the most simplest expressions of life. I know for me, one of the things that uh, I enjoy doing on Sabbath is reading. And uh, by reading, I read a lot for work, but I mean read for pleasure, just for fun, just to enjoy it. And uh, over the break, I spent some time reading, and I was reading in particular a guy by the name of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Many of you are probably familiar with him. He is... uh, Just a fascinating man, a leading Jewish theologian and um, philosopher of the 20th century. He passed away uh, a few years back. Uh, But as I was reading, there were many things that that captured my attention, uh, but one in particular seemed to sum up a weekend that I spent over the break. And here's the quote. It'll be on the screen as well. The meaning of awe is to realize that life takes place under wide horizons. Horizons that range beyond the span of an individual life or even the life of a nation, a generation, or an era. Awe enables us to perceive in the world imitations of the divine, to sense in small things the beginning of infinite significance, to sense the ultimate in the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing, the stillness of the eternal. Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, to get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. This last weekend, instead of being in this sanctuary, I got a chance to be in another sanctuary. Um, I got a little bit of time to be in the Olympic National Forest with my family and some friends. I've got a couple little photos. Um, And so throughout the weekend, we spent some time hiking in the woods, and then each night we would camp out on the beach, and it was a glorious time. I mean, it was a time where I could decompress. I could ignore obligations. I could not look at my phone or email. Instead, I could stare at the beauty of the sun and the stars and all the uh, things around. And I started to feel like I was getting some of what Heschel was saying when he says this. The meaning of awe is to realize that life takes place in wide horizons. He says, to sense in small things the beginning of infinite significance. To live life in radical amazement. There are many things in life, I think, that bring us to awe, that bring us to wonder, that make us feel creative, that take our breath away you could probably replace that image with a bunch of other images that for you would convey even more a picture or understanding of awe. For me, every time I think of that word, every time I think of the idea of being amazed by something, it always draws me back to Isaiah 6. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn to Isaiah 6. We're going to be in the first few verses. It's also going to be on the screen but I would encourage you to turn there I think there's something unique about being able to look at the text and uh, to see it um, and to touch it and to be present with it uh, in a way that doesn't happen on a screen right whether your phone screen or the screen up there Um, now a reminder as you read this this uh, took place about 750 years before the birth of Jesus And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now, these next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah and specifically and intently focused on the person of God. To really dial in in the book of Isaiah the ways in which God is expressed and communicated. And our temptation often, I think, when we come to the Bible and often when we come to moments of worship like we did in song this morning, is to take a passage like this and suddenly make it about us rather than to make it about God. It is so easy for us to take a passage and go, what does this tell me about me? Or how can I be the focus of this particular passage? So for those of you that want to hear that sermon uh, where it's all about us, I'll give it to you really quick here, okay? We'll get it out of the way. Isaiah felt really bad that he was a sinner and he stood before God in smallness. He understood that he needed God, that he was completely uh, desperate and powerless and in need of God, and so that moment moved him to worship where he was absolutely awestruck by God, captivated by him, and Isaiah's worship then moved him to mission. He actually w- said, I'm willing to be sent. I'm willing to go. Here I am I. Send me. End of sermon. Done, okay? We're now going to spend the entire rest of the time focus on the one in whom our focus should be centered, and that is God or Jesus, right? And so the rest of our time will be attentive to this passage, but specifically to God. And the passage says this, that first of all, that God is glorious. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. You have this moment where Isaiah is like transported to the throne room of God. And he gets this picture or this image of being present with God in a unique way. And what he sees, first of all, is God is sitting. Just seated on a throne. Now, it's a picture really of God ruling the world. But with his feet up like what you do on a lazy summer day when you sit back maybe in a hammock or you sit back and you grab an nice tea and you put your feet up and you just kind of chill. It's one of those moments where we picture God in this space completely relaxed. He's not wringing his hands. He's not nervous. He's not biting his nails. He's not pacing back and forth. He's not watching and waiting and wondering. He's not stressed about the going-ons of the world. This is a moment where he is in complete control of everything that is happening in the entire world, and he sits there just chilling. I mean, most of us can't get through a day without biting our nails, nervous, stressed, like, man, what are we going to do about whatever it is We might be experiencing. And God in the moment of ruling the whole world is just sitting. And Isaiah sees him sitting on the throne. And then the verse says that he sees him high and lifted up. That means above the rest. It means exalted and lofty. It means that there is no equal. That he's in a place with other people and other beings. But in that place he is lofty. And and, and far above any other person or any other thing you could ever imagine. It's like what happens, I don't know if you've ever been in a room with a celebrity, but you're like in the room and it feels like the room is normal and everybody's kind of milling around and then in walks whoever. And in that moment, like the whole room goes whoop right toward that person, right? And everything changes in the room because that person is given special status or is uniquely thought of in a particular way. This is that, but magnified a thousand times over. It's nobody else pales in comparison. And so Isaiah sees God seated, but also exalted and eternal and lifted up and amazing. And in to that same thing, it says that the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding, the... Back in the day, the length of the train, the length of the gown would demonstrate the significance of the person or the wealth of the person or the grandeur or importance of the person. That's why some queens, when they uh, were wed on their wedding day, they would have a train that would go from the front all the way down the entire aisle to the back because it showed how significant they were. This is saying that God's train, His splendor, His magnitude, filled the whole room. So imagine that the train just enveloped everything and that there wasn't room for anyone else. That His entire splendor seeped into everything that you could see or experience in the room. This is what... Isaiah is describing as happening in this moment that he's transported to that space. And the passage goes on to say this, that above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, the text is describing that there's angels or seraphim, fiery ones, the text would say, all around God, and every one of them is echoing the same thing, holy, holy, holy. They could have chosen anything to say in that moment. They could have said loving, they could have said glorious, they could have said majestic, they could have said all-knowing, but instead they choose to say holy, set apart, totally other, whole, complete, perfect, lacking nothing. And the text does this really unique thing. It says, holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew, anytime something's repeated, it increases the emphasis of it. Uh, If you flash back for a moment to the story in Judges, Um, it's kind of a gross story, but there's Ehud, he's a left-handed dude, and he goes into the king, and uh, this weird judge's story, he goes in, and he stabs the king, and it says that the sword goes in and gets completely enveloped with the flesh of this pretty large king, right? Um, But when the Hebrew describes it, it doesn't say that he's heavy, it says he's heavy, heavy, okay? So when, when Hebrew's is describing it, they're like, he's heavy, heavy, right? So anytime you create an emphasis like that, it like increases and magnifies a bunch of times over. R.C. Sproul, when speaking of this, said this, The only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that He is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that He is holy, holy, holy and the whole earth is full of his glory. So first off, this passage reminds us that God is glorious above any and everything you can imagine. But second, the text tells us that God is unsettling. The text says that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Again, usually what we do is we focus On Isaiah in this moment and him shaking in his boots, him totally wrecked, him in awe of God, him going, woe is me. Like the focus shifts to the person rather than to the creator. But notice the whole room is shaking and filled with smoke. The reason Isaiah is shaking isn't because he's shaking, but because everything's shaking. Like God is so overwhelming that the entire space is shaking at the presence of God. And we generally want a God who's not shaking. If I'm honest, we want a God that tends to not be stirring anything up. We want a God that's manageable, a God that can be contained, a God that we can create, a God that we can pretend we have figured out, a God that fits in our pocket, a God that makes sense, a God with the same theology as us. That's what we want. And what we have here is a picture of a God that's unsettling, a God that's anything but fitting in our pocket, anything but standard, anything but what's to be expected. But we also have a God that is forgiving. The text goes on to say this, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. And he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We worship a forgiving God. Isaiah in this space says that he is a man of unclean lips. And I think this is vitally important for us to understand this key phrase where he says unclean. See, the Old Testament views this picture of uh, uh, holiness and often describes holiness as clean and unclean, right? So when you think about being holy or unholy, the conversation isn't is that thing holy or unholy, is that person holy or unholy? It's usually is that person or thing clean or unclean, right? That's why you have this weird book called Leviticus, Right in the midst of um, the Old Testament, you have this weird book that lists all these ways that you can be clean or unclean. And it uses the term synonymously with holy. So all these ways you can be holy or unholy, set apart or different or not. And over and over again, it's reminding us that we have ways of becoming unclean. So even if God says of his people, you are clean to the Old Testament Israelites they would find a way of finding themselves unclean. And so this concept of clean and unclean continues throughout the Old Testament. And what you notice is that anytime time that someone's supposed to come before God in the temple, tabernacle, or whatever, the idea is to always enter the presence of God when you're clean. Don't be unclean and come into this space. That's what's communicated. Now, the challenge with that in the Old Testament is very much that it was hard to maintain being clean. If you read through any of the um, statements in Leviticus, you would realize that if you touched a dead body, you would be unclean. If you ate the wrong kind of food or on the wrong day, you would become unclean. If you were in the midst of a menstrual period or if you're had a bodily discharge, you would be unclean. If you had a skin disease or a rash of some sort, you'd be unclean. If your house or your garments had mold or mildew on them, you would be unclean. The problem was they continued to find themselves in a place of being unclean, and it would either require a washing that would ceremonially make you clean again, or it would require a period of time, or it could require a sacrifice. The stakes were high, and what often happened is people would show up and not be able to enter the presence of God, not be able to worship in a unique way simply because they were unclean. And so you have this story of a man in the midst of the throne room of God and going, Oh no, I entered in the wrong way because I am completely unclean. But what you have instead is this incredible picture of God, an incredible picture. First, you worship a God that forgives you at your point of greatest need, right? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I serve among a people of unclean lips. Why would he say that? Most likely because he's a prophet, and his job or responsibility is to declare the words of God to a people. And so he's saying, I am in the midst of God, and I am unclean, and all the people I'm with are unclean with their words, and I am unclean with my words, right? And so what does the Spirit of God do in the midst of that space? He takes a coal and touches what? His lips. So Isaiah is saying, hey, there's one thing on me that's not clean, one thing that needs to be fixed, and God goes, oh, I'll take care of that. I imagine, I wonder if he would have been something else, if he would have proceeded to say something different. And maybe you would too. Maybe you come into this space and you're with God and you're like, God, I'm unclean. I have unclean hands. I've been doing things that aren't right or best or ideal. And my guess is that the coal wouldn't be touching your lips. It'd likely be placed in your hands and you'd be clean. Or if you're like, I've got unclean feet. Well, let's take care of that. Well, I've got an unclean heart. Let's take care of that. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter where your specific need is. What you have is a God that's forgiving and meets you right where your deepest and most profound need is. Whatever that need is, you offer to Him because He says, I forgive you. Now, you've got to remember, to touch something was to become unclean. That's how they became unclean. They touched the wrong thing, and that uncleanliness transfers onto their cleanliness and makes them unclean. That's the concept, right? So what you have here, though, is the reverse. God does it in the opposite. He says, I'll touch you with a thing, And that thing then makes what was considered unclean now clean, right? The coal touches Isaiah. Instead of Isaiah becoming unclean, he becomes fully clean. Now, this is why it's important because the coal in this passage represents or can picture who Jesus is. So in the New Testament, the people were still worried, just as they were in the Old Testament, about what they ate or about what they touched They still worried all the time about being clean and unclean, but what you notice is Jesus, who's not afraid to touch. Jesus is the one that comes into this space that's deemed unclean, touches it, and it becomes clean. He goes to the woman who's bleeding. If she's bleeding, she's unclean. She can't go to the temple and worship, and he touches her, and she becomes clean. Her uncleanliness does not transfer to him. It's the reverse. When he comes to the man with leprosy, again, don't touch it, become unclean. He does the reverse. I touch it and you become clean. I transfer all that I have that's pure and right and good onto you. It might sound familiar, huh? That there is this way of him transferring his perfection His holiness, His beauty, His otherness, His set-apartness to you and to me. That is what it means to be made holy. Where Jesus touches, life is restored. When someone's dead, He touches and they come to life. There is this movement in the text that shows us that it's not about separation. It's not about the unclean. It's about being made holy. Religion is all about separation. Religion focuses on what keeps us from the love of God. Religion has told many of us our entire life, shame on you, and by shame on you, I mean now you're separated from God in some unique way, and he doesn't love you anymore because you're not perfect. And yet nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Romans speaks to that truth. And so you have a God who comes in and says, I've declared you clean. You're mine. You're chosen. We're not separated. We're together. When you are touched by a coal or by Jesus, you can rest assured that you are viewed by God as clean because we have a forgiving God, which takes us to the last particular. God is inviting Or sending. At the conclusion of this section, the text says this And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. See, God is inviting you. He is giving you space to move into a place of awe and wonder. He's giving you space to surrender and say, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you call me to. He's giving you space to be on mission. He's giving us space to be compelled to go and tell others. He's giving us space to say, you are invited to be present with me. You're invited to be in relationship. And what he's doing is he's inviting more and more and more and more people into worshiping him. And so when we receive that invitation, when we hear that call, it's our opportunity to say, send me. I want to wrap up our time by reading a poem. This is a poem that uh, a friend of mine, Danielle Estelle, now Danielle Ramsey, wrote quite a few years back on this particular passage. I asked her this week, I said, "If could I read it again? We, I think it was about five years ago that uh, we read it. And uh, I think it's very, um, a, a great way to kind of wrap up what this text is saying because it's reminding us that God is all of these things. And in the midst of it, we're invited to be something around and in and through him. Today, salvation is the color of a coal mine resting in the palm of an angel, blessing our lips like a match, like a smoking chimney, like a forest fire flooding through our bloodstreams. We have declared our delights in mission and commitment These are paths we've traveled down much too far to even consider looking back. Because, Jesus, you've branded into our chests hearts like dawn, hearts like lighthouses, hearts like a tide rising steady. You said, behold, heaven has kissed your lips. Coal has kissed your lips. Coal is what diamonds are made of. How then could we not sparkle like redemption? How then could we not believe as hard as freedom? We are made Isaiah's brothers, Isaiah's sisters. This new heritage compelling us to fall on our knees, to beg. Send me. Here am I. Here are we. Send all of us. We will not simply build you castles, we will not simply lay cement for you, because settle down is precisely what this gospel is not. We are too small, and it is too big, for its forest fire to be contained within our hearts. Though we are not flawless jewels, though our candles will often flicker, You are plenty shelter for us to outlive the rain. So make us like seraphim. Let us carry 10,000 coals to kiss this world's sins goodnight. To declare that we will go, that we will be sent, that we will burn into whatever land, whatever neighborhood, whatever place you would bless us to. Will you stand with me as we receive our benediction new community as you leave today remember who you are a holy and treasured being fully loved by God remember that God is holy, glorious unsettling forgiving and inviting God is with you and knows you So go now in the power of our loving God. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.